You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. <laughs> Another episode of Trout Tales. On this episode, we're keeping things lighthearted by sharing stories about our favorites, favorite artifacts, archaeological sites, and so on. For me, it's hard to pick one place or one amazing artifact. Archaeologists can go to field school anywhere in the United States, or the world for that matter. Then, at least in CRM and federal work, archaeologists get to survey and excavate places the public rarely gets to see. For example, I got to survey parts of the Pacific Crest Trail, going up and over mountains, but I've also been able to excavate and study all over the world. There simply is too much to choose from, but every archaeologist has at least one favorite out of many. When I was asked to talk about my experiences as an archaeologist, I was instantly drawn to it because archaeologists live fascinating lives. I guess I can vouch for that. Over the past 10 years, I've worked and lived on numerous continents and states, including Guam, Saipan, California, Arizona, Utah, and Pennsylvania. I've slept in the company's office, hotel rooms, camped, and stayed at youth hostels, all in the name of archaeology. I roughly define archaeology as the pursuit of understanding the past to inform the present. And the way we can learn about the past are through the things that are left over from the passage of time. So therefore, archaeologists study things that were created in the past in order to inform the future. I work on the Big Island of Hawaii. Probably my favorite thing about the Big Island is all the different landscapes and environments. You know, you drive to one side of the island, there are all the volcanic rocks, and it feels like you're on the surface of the moon. Then you drive to the other side, and there are rainforests and waterfalls, and it's probably one of the most beautiful places on Earth. And when I'm working, I get to explore and study these landscapes. It's one of the most extreme and beautiful places I've ever worked. Most of the archaeological sites are in incredibly remote areas that are hard to access. The lava flows are sharp, and if you fall, they can mangle you. Growing up in the frontier west in Wyoming, dealing with extreme weather and landscapes has really helped me with this variable. Some of the big archaeological questions on the Hawaiian Islands revolve around the peopling of the Hawaiian Islands in the past. So you have to start asking yourself, why would people essentially come to the Hawaiian Islands and how did they find them? How did they get here? What kind of factors would drive a group of people to essentially move to this uninhabited island that we now call Hawaii? And with this movement of native Hawaiians, they brought with them cultural ideas about 
how to survive, and they brought different things to Hawaii that we can still see today, like the banana plant and the taro and all these beautiful Hawaiian plants that were incredibly important to the native Hawaiians when they first came to this place. Later in time, James Cook came to the big island of Hawaii at Kealakekua Bay and really marked the beginnings of a time of dramatic cultural change in Hawaii. There's a lot of people that ended up coming to Hawaii for various reasons, including agriculture, the missionaries, ranchers, and even the military came out here. So what's unique about working in Hawaii is that it's an incredibly complex tapestry of time where you have all these different types of time periods that are essentially interwoven together and exist on top of each other. For example, you'll have a area that was used by native Hawaiians for agriculture and then later on it was used for sugarcane and then later on it was used for ranching and now currently it's used for a military training on a base. So the role of the archaeologists is in order to figure out the past we need to make really good research ideas and try to piece together the past and whether it be looking at a mound of rocks and deciding if it's either ranching or something that the military made these are important things I consider my job sacred in Hawaii because these decisions ultimately impact the future of Hawaii and fortunately there's an incredibly rich oral tradition and Hawaiian activist movement that helps out and augments the archaeological interpretations and in Hawaii a community-based archaeology is a huge part of the future so as an archaeologist working in Hawaii I have a lot of responsibility in order to help make informed decisions for the future and this makes my job incredibly important. At Wide Ruins, that was pretty amazing. It was, there was like a kiva that was, I think, two feet deep or something like that. Or no, not two feet, two meters deep. That was pretty cool. I mean, there was one guy on the crew who's incredibly tall and I mean, some people, they'll know exactly who I'm talking about, but you could, he's about six, seven or so, and you could just barely see the top of his head <laughs> when he was standing in it. So that was a really cool site just in general. Like they, there was room blocks with slab floors. And when you work down in Phoenix Basin with like pit houses with earthen floors, and then you go up north and excavate actual slab floors, it's like, you know, you got a floor. <laughs> That's kind of a fun experience when, as opposed to just like, is it floor or is it not floor? I mean, <laughs> when it's so ephemeral down here. We did have some pretty cool stuff at this last project, some really cool pit houses, like one that had a really good um, plaster floor where you could actually see it coming up the walls. Like, um, I was monitoring the backhoe when we hit it and it looked almost like a really long shirt that was vertical in the ground, but no, that was like wall that we hit. So that was really fun. I'd never seen anything like that before. All right, my favorite site. It's actually a series of sites. Uh, I was doing a 
uh, recreation of the Santa Fe Trail. And as we were coming down, we knew that uh, from some of the aerial photography that we looked at for trying to find the route that we wanted to survey, became what looked like a Pueblo, um, which doesn't really make sense in that area. Um, and it turned out when we came on it, it was actually a stage stop that was associated with the Santa Fe Trail. Um, so that was pretty cool. That that was that was neat. Um, but what was really neat, what interesting about it, is on the other side of the drainage was a Plains uh, Native American site that had multiple stone circles for some kind of structures, um, as well as rock art panel and a large lithic scatter. Um, so you had this really neat area where you can see multiple use over the course of probably you know hundreds of years um, and just in one small little drainage. So that would be my favorite sites. One of the, the things that I always talk about when people ask like what's the coolest thing you've ever found is digging up in in Canada at a kind of contact period in what sod house. So we were expecting to find, you know, some, some stoneware and nails from floorboards and, you know, things that are, are relatively modern in the, in the archaeological record. And as we're, we're digging, we're finding all these uh, flakes from, from stone tools that don't really seem to, to come from the, the period that we're interested in and they don't look like they've been modified either it doesn't like somebody is picking something up off the ground and saying well i can change this to make it more useful for for what we're doing today um and over the course of about a week um the the crew found know, oh, 10 10 plus of these these things like beautiful um museum quality you know, arrowheads and, and knife blades and just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful pieces, um, including one that I had found the uh, third or fourth day we were there. And it was a blade for a knife that looks like it was somewhere between four and six thousand years old, just based on the on the napping style um, of, of that particular blade. And it was just really interesting because this wasn't a site that we were expecting to find, you know, any, anything super old. The, the site had been identified in the, the 1960s um, as, as the site of a, you know, contact period, a group of, of three houses. And that's really all we were expecting. And all of a sudden, we're finding all of this really, really old stuff. Um, and we found some modern stuff, but really not a lot. You know, they'd done like a really good job cleaning out or hadn't, hadn't been there for so long. Um, you know, I'm, the, the interpretation is still underway. Um, oh, wow. Actually, uh, it was a, a fairly recent um, experience. And I don't think that there's any plans to go look at the other two houses to see if they can, you know, shed more light. It's a difficult part of the world to, to excavate in. Um, but it's always really interesting when you find really anachronistic things like that. And then uh, a portion of the house that we were doing two by twos for, um, you know, we got down to, to cultural level and 
I was seeing this, you know, kind of dark um, staining looking in the in the soil. So I decided to to dig down a little bit below what had been sterile in, you know, three out of the the four quadrants of the the two by two, and actually found what looked like a fire pit that had a whole bunch of charcoal in it. Um, but it was it was there was still a layer of sterile between between that and um, what we were looking at for the the contact period site so you know then you you end up with questions of did the people who built that house realize that that fireplace was there I mean there wasn't very much of a covering over it did they they not realize that that it was there um, and then there are a bunch of microblades around that which is also an, an older style of flint napping um, so just the, the layers of occupation, we really weren't expecting it. It was super fascinating. Well, my favorite moments during survey, because I, I mean, I prefer survey to excavation. My favorite moments during survey are those feelings when you are 700 miles away from home and you're on a mountainside, a tree line, and you're, you can't see your crew. You're the only one, you know, that you're aware of. It doesn't have to be archaeology, per se, but you're really in the middle of nowhere. And regardless of whether or not someone has actually stepped there before or not, which in all likelihood someone has, regardless of that, you're humbled by the, like, power and scope of nature of, of your observable universe. I mean, looking out over just hundreds of miles is one of the most like awe-inspiring, beautiful feelings that I feel like most people on a day-to-day basis don't even understand. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not fortunate enough to have archaeology work in the off season so like a lot a lot of people you know so i'm uh you know i work at a music venue um yeah and no one no one no one outside of field work and i and i'm not just saying archaeologically i mean there's biologists geologists whoever but no one outside of what we do really understands what it is or why and when i started it was because i thought it was cool and because uh, you know i wanted to to, I mean, really stereotypically like fortune and glory and published and write books. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I found myself like in these places that are just so remote that most people who claim to be outdoor enthusiasts wouldn't be able to make it to. And uh, yeah, it's, it's all inspiring. And I just, it's hard to relate that to people uh, with big open sky overhead, mountains underfoot. Yeah, that's my favorite part. Those are my, those are some of my favorite moments on survey. I mean, there's always the satisfaction of cutting out into a clearing and there's just flakes, you know, or one, that one flake or that one point. You know, the last project I was on was uh, outside of Taos and I found the only point on the project, um, like the whole project. And I, you know, it was satisfying and cool, but 
I forgot about it a day later, you know, and next thing I know, the the best thing for me is being at the highest point in the survey area and looking out over the mountain range I'm on. And yeah, you know, that sort of stuff is good. Like being good at what you do is good, but, but like feeling humbled by nature, you know, feeling like you could have a beer with John Muir is pretty cool. Site, we believe that spending money on learning is great if it helps you solve a problem. If you're a cultural resource management professional, you want to make your workflow faster and more efficient to beat your competitors. If you're a student or young professional, you'll want to learn marketable skills to get that job. If you're a faculty, you want to stay up to date with teaching topics, but you feel overwhelmed by all the technologies and tools out there. Digitaltraining.site is for you. You'll get relevant topics by top-level instructors and downloadable materials at an affordable cost. And if you're an enrolled student, apply for a scholarship and attend for free. Start learning now at digitaltraining.site. Welcome back. We'll continue with stories of our favorite things in archaeology. Middle Woodland Burial Mound in Illinois on a field school. And we weren't excavating human remains. We were looking at the southern end of the of the mound. The mound is called Mound House, and there's actually a very nice monograph that was put out by Jane Bikestra and Doug Charles um, about the, the site. There was a few years of excavation there. So one day we dug in um, two by twos, two meter by two meter units. Um, so we had a, a fairly big area to excavate for a two-person team. And so we were shovel scraping with a flat, a big flat shovel. Um, you know, two by two is a big area. So we were just kind of peeling off shovel scrapings. And uh, the dirt was kind of a dark brown, kind of rich organic soil on the floodplain of the Illinois River. And so we were <clears throat> shovel scraping along and I threw a shovel full of dirt in the screen and the my dig partner who was screening said whoa that's yellow huh. and so we stopped and, and we scraped down the unit with our trowels and sure enough there were um, four yellow kind of circular-ish blobs in an arc across our unit we're like well that is strange and so uh, during and you know, we scraped those down and then we um, realized that they were probably post, post holes, post molds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we cut one in half. We excavated half of one. And sure enough, they were post molds filled with yellow soil. And so the posts didn't rot in place. What happened was the posts were pulled and the yellow soil was put in the holes where the posts were. So there was an arc of these, um, and we you could theorize that it actually was a circle at the southern end of the mound. Um, 
and that there was some kind of ritual activity there because there were four layers of different yellow soils in the bottom of one of these postals. So um, it was full, and then below that, that the soil that filled the postmold, below that there were three other different kinds of soils that varied in color and texture. And so they had repeatedly done this. They had put a post in, pulled it out, filled it with yellow soil, dug out the yellow soil, put in a new post, and so they had done that three times. Well, it was some kind of ritual activity, um, not really sure, you know, what kind of ritual, maybe it was a burial ritual, um, you know, maybe it was, it was a burial mound, so that's kind of a, you know, a realistic, uh, logical assumption that it was some kind of burial ritual. Um, now, the time frame between the, the setting of the post and the pulling of the post and then redoing it is, you know, up for... Uh, speculation, whether it was a yearly occurrence or whether it happened when a certain type of person died or, uh, you know, when, you know, who, who knows. But um, it, it is clear evidence of ritual activity at a, a burial mound location. You know, it's an interesting question. I do have an answer, but I'd first like to say when you're a CRM archaeologist and you're just doing this, whether you're excavating or surveying all year long, and I've been doing this 11 years now, um, the coolest thing really kind of comes down almost to a daily or weekly basis, um, not like a lifetime basis, because you could be walking out there and not find anything for days and days and days out here in the high desert, and then all of a sudden you find this broken little projectile point. Well, that just became the coolest thing I've ever found <laughs> because I haven't seen anything in so long. I don't know. I feel like most archaeologists would have a hard time picking a favorite. One of, I'd say uh, the coolest thing, I, the coolest place I've found was a Maya site inside of a cave in Belize, and it was while I was on survey uh, me and this small crew had been hiking around in the jungles and we stopped in this small town and there was this little like kind of convenience store, general store kind of thing in the town and, uh, popped in there and I was just asking about land ownership and stuff. Um, because we had a permit from the government to, to go onto anybody's private land, but just as, you know, just to be polite, uh, and not you know, enrage the, the, you know, local residents, uh, I would just go and check around and be like, Hey, I want to go up here. Do you know who owns it? You know, if I could track them down, um, you know, cause with it, with those kind of communities, basically everybody knows everybody. And oh, if that person isn't there, then they usually know how to get in touch with them. So I'm going around and, uh, they're like, yeah. Uh, and also when I'm doing stuff like that, they usually, readily volunteer information about cool sites <clears throat> and so they're like oh yeah there's this cave up there uh up on top of this big hill you should go up there and i was like uh if you if if you're free could you could you show me and he was like yeah there's and so this guy goes up there and shows me he didn't want to go in he he was like no nah, sometimes cows wander in there and they die you know uh, i don't want to go in there and uh so i popped down in there 
and I'm poking around and I see like limestone blocks that are, you know, they're filthy. They're, they're covered in, in all sorts of, you know, collapse and soil and set and plants and stuff. And I'm like, something looks different about this. And I had this headlamp in my backpack that I hardly ever used because I was always on the surface. And so, uh, I pull it out and I'm shining around and I'm like, this is architecture inside a cave. And that's weird. And so, uh, I pop back out and tell my crew and they're like, what, really? And I'm like, yeah. And so we pop back down in there and, uh, they come in and one of them sees a big ceramic vessel. Okay. Well, let's get out of here. <laughs> and the guy like, cause we had to be so careful about looting. And it's one of those things like the guy knew there was a site in there. And so, you know, there's no point in lying to the guy and being like, oh, well, we didn't find anything. You know, so we go, oh, yeah, sure enough, there's a site. Thank you so much for for telling us that. And so, like, we got his information, wrote it down and all that so we could credit him in the report. And um, and we went on. And it's one of those things where, like, you see that and it just kind of blows your mind that you see it. And it's, like, creepy but also awesome at the same time. And it's it's one of those things that I wish I could go back, but that just wasn't part of my scope of work. You know, it was like my scope of work was just do the survey, identify sites, record as much as I could to, you know, assess the research value so that teams in the future could go back and do research on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was one of those one of those moments too, where it was like early on I was learning about scope of work because I just wanted to abandoned survey and go work in this cave (laughs) and they were like no there's still so much survey for you to do uh so i had to keep surveying it's really hard for me to choose just one favorite artifact excavation area to excavate or coolest experience um but i can easily say that my favorite thing about archaeology as a whole is how you can have many different roles as an archaeologist um get to wear many different hats so to speak uh when i worked for the park service part of my job was protecting archaeological sites from wildfires one of my favorite experiences while doing fire archaeology was being flown by helicopter to a remote wildfire um an area middle of nowhere uh, to assess the archaeological sites out there. It was just simply too far to hike to this wilderness area and that was most of the time with wildfires, time was was of the essence. We had to get out there. Uh, I had never been in a helicopter before and uh, this seemed like it was going to be my most like Indiana Jones-ish adventure-like moment. Uh, I mean, how many people can say they just, they have to be flown via via helicopter um, in the pursuit of archaeology? It kind of blew my mind and to tell the truth, I was a little freaked out too. I was given very little notice and I had to do some quick online training, you know, like on how not to die while in a helicopter, getting in and out of the helicopter. And I think it was the next day that I met with the fire helitech crew, was given a flight suit, and popped in the helicopter with, uh, I think, two other uh, fire guys. And just getting up in the air, we got to fly over these rolling hills and um, mountains and got to see these beautiful meadows. And it was just 
amazing that view I had never been up that high other than you know in an airplane and so you're not too far off the ground you could really see why people would want to be in that area um, both in prehistoric and historic times I mean there's just an incredible beauty um, you could see the resources and just to be able to see that from a bird's eye view was absolutely amazing Well, something that immediately comes to mind, it connects back to that really just lovely field school experience that I had. I was excavating a hearth on a beach, right? Hearth on a beach. Sounds awful. And came across um, a turtle shell that was like in the hearth. And perhaps this turtle had been cooked. It was very cool. Um, <laughs> and of course, I've never come across anything like that in the Southwest. <laughs> um See, well, on survey, I mean, on, on survey, where I've gotten to survey has just been places that other people haven't gone in a very long time. So it's not necessarily, I mean, I'm certainly not discovering anything new when I've been, um, when I've been surveying usually, um, because we, we were really doing site revisits, but, but there was always that sense of that personal sense of discovery as you round a bend or climb up on top of a butte. You know, you you know how uh, I don't know if you do this, but whenever <laughs> I am walking around this landscape, if I see a high place, I just have to go and see what's up there. And it's that sense of discovery when you go up and and find out what's up there, find out, you know, were people living up there? Did they build some sort of defensive structure? Was there a tower? What's the visibility from those places? That's one of the things that I love looking at across this part of the Southwest is just what you can see from where, because you can see so much. And, and, you, and to me, you can tell a lot about what, what people found to be important, whether it was you know, keeping an eye on their neighbors or being able to see important mountain, mountains or mountain ranges on the horizon. Um, you can really get a sense of what was important by going to those places and taking in the sort of sensory experience of being there. And that, I think, is one of the, if I had to nail down something, I know it's ephemeral, but something that I really enjoy discovering, it's not necessarily the objects, but it's the sensation of being in some of these places. There are so many amazing things we find and experience in archaeology. But as I hope these stories demonstrated, it's not just about the stuff, the artifacts, or huge archaeological sites. It's the love of discovery, being at beautiful locations, and protecting and preserving the past. Special thanks to Jesse. Carrie, Mike, Chelsea, Chris, another Chris, David, Kristen, and Kyle for contributing their time and stories. Music was created for this podcast by Tristan Elliott. Check out the podcast on Facebook and TrowelTales.com to learn more about the podcast and let us know what kind of stories you'd like to hear. 
Also, if you're an archaeologist and would like to contribute a tale or two, send a message to troutalespodcast at gmail.com. Until next time! This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.